Welcome to the Fellowship Regional Church Podcast. Good morning. We are in Colossians. Colossians, part 7. This is chapter 2, starting off in verse 8. Glad you're here. Um, one of the things that I find so exciting about um, Sunday mornings is oftentimes Luke and I, I say oftentimes, rarely, 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 do he and I discuss what I'm talking about and what he's talking about. We rarely have those conversations. Um, we talk about a hundred other things, but we never talk about, like, what are you saying on Sunday? I'm not going to step on your toes, am I? Um, and then what is so cool is when we both show up and I'm sitting and I'm listening to my sermon coming from the communion meditation guy. <laughs> now, unless he's like, like getting on my computer and getting my stuff off and like doing it, like, I, think that is, I think that's so exciting. I think that's so cool. Um, that, that's uh, this testament to uh, the spirit of Christ, spirit of unity. It was connecting us, weaving us together pointing us all in a, in a similar direction. So that's, that's good confirmation for us. Uh, last week we talked about Colossians uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Uh, let me read you what that passage says. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. And if you remember, I picked on the idea of political correctness. And I talked about how it has a place, and it, and it makes sense in, in a vacuum, in, a, in an isolated um, uh, location. It, it makes sense. But in view of God's word, political correctness falls flat on its face. But let, let's, take it, let's take it to the next step. When we talk about sexuality, there's this push for several years about the sexual revolution. Here's what's crazy to me. It didn't get tangled up. Like, it didn't just gradually get tangled up and, and sexuality suppressed. That's not what happened. Here's what happened. We refused to get on board. We refused to get on board with what God wanted us to do. Money. Money's important. It's beneficial. It's really helpful if there's some in your wallet. You know where it becomes very unhelpful? When it creeps from your wallet all the way across your body and buries itself uh, in your heart. Then money is not so helpful. It will stifle your compassion for other people. It will limit your scope. Like you will begin to see people as all of them are coming for my money. As soon as money crawls from your wallet into your heart, it becomes a problem. There are some great notions, I mean some fine-sounding philosophies and arguments that our world is built on. If we buy into them, we will be deceived with hollow and deceptive philosophies. Spirituality, this is another one. You cannot get on the internet without somebody talking about how they're going to rewrite the Bible. And I know they don't say it like that, but here's what they say. Only God can judge me. That's actually not true. I can judge you if I want to. And so can the other hundred bajillion people reading your Facebook post. Because we do. <laughs> judge you. Yeah, but I mean in the end. Actually, that's not true either. Jesus said that you can tell, fruit, you can tell a tree by its fruit. 
So that tattoo, only God can judge me? Looks good on your arm, but theologically, does not hold water. Only God can judge me. This idea that, you know what, my idea of who God is. Hold on a second. Is that fair for me to do to you? You show up, and I say to you, hey, do you mind if I borrow your car? And you go, well, sure. And then I walk away, and I think, my idea of who he is is that he just gave me that. And I drive your car off. Is that fair? Well, that's not who I am. Yeah, but that's who I think you are. So are you comfortable with that? No, but we do this to God all the time. There is absolutely no question, no topic that is left, that is left undone in Scripture. Yet, we got our own ideas on how things should go. They are such good-sounding arguments, though, and we buy in. Part of the reason is this. Anytime we bring up these kind of topics, did you feel the, just, did you, could you hear the silence in the room? Could you hear the uncomfortableness and people like pulling their feet closer in, away from the edges of their shoes? Why? Because anytime you stand up and say, this is what I believe, or this is what I understand, or I'm going to accept God's view of this, or you hear something like this, God speaks into our culture, into our politics, into our lifestyle, suddenly something happens. There is a fracture that happens. Sometimes it happens between family and friends. Sometimes the fracture happens between us and God. You bring up topics like this, and immediately we begin to think to ourselves, I don't want to be put in a category to where my identity is now that I am a bigot, that I am prejudiced, that I am angry. So here's our response as Christians. Here's what we do. We either retreat and move backwards away from God, toward the world or we decide we're moving toward God away from the world let me tell you why this happens for the last I don't know 7,500 years or so we have been conditioned now you're going to love this we have been conditioned so that we see perpetrators and victims are you with me so far our world our culture news everything has convinced us that the world is made up of two groups of people perpetrators and victims. Thus, anybody that cries is a victim, and whoever they're crying about must be the perpetrator. So when somebody says, I really don't like the idea of having fidelity inside of a relationship, like inside of a marriage relationship, I don't like that. I think that's oppressive. Why can't I have an open marriage with two or three other partners, and she can too? Why not that? I'm not really comfortable with the idea of tithing. You say tithing in church, people get a little worked up sometimes. Talk about homosexuality. What happens? <whistles> why? Here's why. Because there's somebody we know and somebody we love who lives this way. And now God seems to be moving into my life and making me choose. Will I love them or will I stand with God? Thus, if they are the victim, God must be the perpetrator. And there's this angst that exists between us and God and us and people because we don't know how to live in that. We don't know how to live in the uncomfortableness of God's word says this, but I love somebody who's like this. If that's your view of God, that he is a perpetrator against the human race, that those who have been just 
victimized by his outrageous standard, then listen, I'm so glad you're here. Because this passage in Colossians is incredible, clears it up. Here's what, now listen, this is a little personal, so you have to forgive me of this. Some people think they are so absolutely wide open-minded. They are so good at loving the down and out. And listen, if that's you, I'm coming for you today. Hear me? I am coming. Here's why. Because you think you have a very wide understanding of who God is and who people are. Listen, by the end of this deal, your scope of understanding and even loving people is narrow, weak, and prejudice. By the time we get done with this passage, that's my, that's my goal, is to convince you, that's you, that that's where, your, that's where your mindset is, that it is limited, it is weak, and it is prejudice. So, before I hurt your feelings anymore, let's get into the passage. Verse 8, see to it that no one takes you, takes you captive by, uh, through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. Okay, verse 9, for in Christ... All the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Verse 10. And all you, and you have been given fullness. Where? In Christ. Hey, we have some slides. You got those up there? Can you take me to those? I think those are up there. In the, whatever it's called. Okay, if they show up, you can see them. So, for in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ. Here's the problem. Here's why all those topics tend to push us around. Because our identity gets formed based on what we believe, on how we believe about different things. And if we believe a certain way, that automatically, we feel, marks our identity and puts us in a category that we don't want to be in. So it leaves us flailing around, not knowing where we belong. When we go trying to find our own identity in whether what we believe or how our appearance is, in our, in our cars, in our money, all of a sudden we, got, we have trouble. If God walked into the room and he said, if you cannot dunk a basketball, you're going to go to hell. Who's going to hell? There's a lot more of you going to hell. You think you can dunk a basketball. <laughs> Just letting you know. If God walked in and he said, okay, everybody must make $250,000 a year before they can go to heaven. Oh, okay, well. God walks in and he says, okay, you have to be over five foot five. I barely made it. <laughs> you know what I mean? But he doesn't do that. You know why? Because for God to call all people to himself, he has to. This is on him. It's not on us. For him to call us to him, he must provide us a way to him. He has to give me the ability to get there. And if he doesn't give me the ability to get there, yet he holds an outrageous standard, then he is not a God I would worship anyway. So God either calls all men to himself and supplies their every need, or he doesn't. The truth of it is this. He is calling all men to him. And he is the supplier of every single thing we need for holiness. That's who he is. I love this, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness, where? In Christ. 
Paul's, Paul's coming at us. He's coming at us. He's attacking us. He's attacking us on, 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 this, on this level. There's two words we need to look at. The word fullness. The word fullness, all the fullness of the deity existed in bodily form in Jesus Christ. The Greeks understood it this way, that God's deity was then dispersed throughout angels, sometimes people, and everybody got a little portion of it. Thus, we're all like a little piece of the puzzle. When Paul writes this to this Greek, to this Greek group right here, here's what he's saying. Your gods can do whatever they want to do, and they can disperse through angels and little people and little fragments of him everywhere. Let me tell you what Jesus did. Jesus took on the full measure of who God is and came to earth with it. This word is this, this idea of fullness. It's not, remember the old school palms you could pull up uh, and they would fill it up for you? Do those exist anymore? Does anybody? Yeah? Yeah? That's crazy because you don't see it anymore. There used to be one in Coffeeville and we'd pull up. My mom would always say the same thing, like, put $4 in. <laughs> like it was something like that. And so this guy would always put them up. When this, this right here, this is filled up, it isn't, hey, Mac, fill it up. This is, hey, Mac, fill it up and be sure you get some on the concrete. This is five gallons in a measuring cup. It says that all the fullness of deity dwelled in Jesus Christ. The next word is this. The word dwelled, or in, our, in the NIV, I think it says lived, or tabernacled, or whatever the word is. That word means made perfectly at home. So God pours himself into Jesus Christ in absolute excess to overflowing and makes himself perfectly at home in Jesus Christ. Here's the good news of that. God gave us Christ so that we could meet the standard, so that we can meet this outrageous standard that we look at and we're like, I could never be holy. I'm terrible. I've screwed up so many things already in my head this morning before I even got to church. How in the world can I live a holy life? Because Jesus came in the full deity. The next verse, I mean, next part of the verse. Verse 10, and you have been given fullness, where? In Christ. This has everything to do with our identity. This has everything to do with our identity. Who you see me as. Who I think you think I am. How I function in the world when I'm feeling these eyes on me. All these things in the world that make our, or that we think make our identity, Paul writes right here, your identity is in Christ. If your identity is in Christ, you have absolutely nothing to fear. The problem is that I really want my identity to be in something else. Like I want to be a famous actor. Kind of. Which is bad because I don't even want to be like a famous preacher. I just want to be like a famous actor. Like, not really. I mean, I kind of do, but see what I mean? Like, we all have these little weird things. Like, I want to be this when I grow up, or I want to be this, or I want to be known for this. I want to be this kind of person. I want to be seen this way. That looks cool. We say these kind of things. And all of a sudden, my ego gets in the way. My boneheadedness gets in the way. 
And I have to go climb a mountain somewhere and listen to a guru tell me who I am so that I can find my identity. I've got to take a long road trip with some buddies so I can figure out who I am. So I've got to go on a drinking binge so I can figure out who I am. I've got to go sleep around so that I can figure out who I need to be with and what's compatible with who my personality is. And then all these things that tangle everything up, all the while I'm moving further and further and further and further away from Christ. When I will only be found, my identity can only be found in him. Look at this next verse. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised in the putting off of the sinful nature, not with the circumcision done by the hands of men, but with the circumcision done by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism and raised with him through your faith in the power of God who raised him from the dead. Verse 11, in him you were also circumcised. Can you imagine if the Colossians read this for the first time? They're like buzzing along, a lot of good theology, and then they're like circumcised, and the Colossians are like, this is weird. Here's the backstory. Um, God established a covenant with Abraham saying that he was going to give him children. Like the sand on the seashore, like the stars in the sky. He said, these are going to be your children, and I'm going to mark my children. This is going to be their representation, their little thing about them that tells them who they are. This is their identity. So here it is, circumcision. Check this out. From the most mundane, daily, biological activity that all of us have every single day. Men, you with me? We go into a restroom and we relieve ourselves. From that point forward, the Jew of that time period would know in the most minimal act who he was. All the way to the complexities of married life in the bedroom. He knew who he was and whose he was. This was a mark on them personally so that they would never forget who they were and whose they were. There was this false teaching that was rolling around at the time. Paul's talking about these false teachers. And these false teachers were coming in. And they were saying this. Oh, all these Greeks, all these people, these, uh, these Gentiles have shown up. And they want to become a Christian. Okay, here's the steps you take to become a Christian. First, become a Jew. And so then they're going around to these Greek living people, these Gentiles, and saying, you must be circumcised, then you, you can become a Christian. Paul, I don't remember exactly how he says it, but basically... Uh, that is whack. You don't have to. Paul's like, no. Vehemently opposed. No. You do not have to become anything other than anything at all except repentant and dependent on Jesus Christ. If there was another idea out there that you got to do this or you got to do this or you got to do this for Jesus to love you or for him to care about you, it's wrong. He already does. He already did. In him, who is the head over the power, who is the head over every power and authority. In him, you were circumcised in the putting off of your sinful nature. All of a sudden, we start, we start getting into this idea of we are made complete in Christ. Let's move on down. Verse 13, Paul is just worked up in a frenzy. He's about to just completely overload. He's amped up in the gospel message. He's about to deliver the gospel message. And, and this, is such a, this is such a good 
Such a good writing here. Verse 13. When you were dead in your sins and in this uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all our sins, having canceled the written code and its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. You see, we are made complete in Christ. Listen, I, I, I'm with you. There are moments to where we feel like we really got to go find ourselves. There's moments to where we really feel like, you know, I got to make some new, I got to set up a new system here. I, my, it's not working. I'm not moving forward. I don't feel like I'm growing. That doesn't mean we throw out the, we throw out the system that, that God established. That means we recommit. We put ourselves back in that place. Here's what I need us to do real quick. I think all too often, we turn on God and we say, he is the perpetrator. I'm the victim. Why would God do this to me? I mean, I go to church. I'm a minister for crying out loud. Why do I got a bum leg? Why would he do this to me? I tie. I care. I pray. Why would this happen to me? Here's what I need us to do real quick. This is a little, this is a little unordinary for, for us. Here's what I need us to do. Let's pray real quick. Let's repent. Let's put ourselves in a place to where we can tell God, you know what? It's true. I have made you the perpetrator. When the truth of it is this, I just refuse to get on board with what you wanted. I'm not a victim. If I'm a victim, it's a victim at the hands of myself. Nothing else. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we, uh, we apologize. But we're sorry for making you the perpetrator somehow in our mind, Lord, fabricating this, this story that, that somehow you have done this. But we know your word says specifically that you are working to complete us that all things in this life that are going on are, are, are going to happen and unfold for the good of us who, uh, who love you and live according to your word. Lord, yet we live outside of your word, outside of your protection, and gripe and complain and moan about how you are just so strict and you are so hard. God, we apologize, uh, Lord, communally as a group, but we want to offer our apologies we ask that you forgive us for veering away from what it is that you called us to do and called us to be. Love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 13. Listen to the emphasis on this. When you were dead in your sins, when you were dead in your sins, and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive in Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. I love what Luke was saying earlier. There is not a thing I can do to convince God that he needs to love me. There is not a list of requirements. There's nothing that I can perform for him that he couldn't do himself. He doesn't need me on the team. 
yet he came and he suffered in my place. When we can get our mind around the idea that God is the supplier of every single thing that we need, here's what happens. I can stand and I can say, I do not believe in homosexuality. And I can also say this. But I also know that God does not stand to believe in the lust that lies in my heart either. Or of the bitterness that lies in the hearts of some of you. Or in the lying, or in the drunkenness, or in the infidelity. Here's my hope. That so long as I keep pursuing God, he will supply me with what I need to overcome whatever it is in my life. See, here's the thing we've seen here at Fellowship Regional Church. People have walked through the door from so many different walks of life. Some of them from a homosexual background, some of them from a drug-addicted background, porn and sex-addicted background, some of them from affluence. Wealthy, greedy, you know what else we've even seen here? Christians come in here and become Christians. God knows they need it most of the time. They walk in the door. This is what we've seen happen. And so you see, here's the deal. Some of us don't wrestle with some of these big issues. We just don't. Some of us do. And God supplies every single thing we need to overcome. Here's what this means. That if you are coming from a massive deficit, God has supplied you and you've had more encounters with him than we have. That if you're coming from a place that you are just severely beat up in an abusive place, God has offered more grace and more blessing in your life maybe than he has in the rest of ours. And we've got to stop seeing it like here's the standard. Oh, look. They only move this far. Some of us are coming from the depths of hell with our life. And God has blessed us and got us to hear. He's the great supplier. Let me tell you what happens. When we get on board with what God wants, God's view of humanity is this, not that they are a victim. I'm so uncomfortable with the idea of looking at the world as victim and perpetrators. Here's my reason why. Because a victim is a very weak thing. You know that and I know that. If you're a victim of something, that means you are helpless. That means you are broken down. And I'm not okay with that. Because that's not how God sees us. God doesn't see us as victims. God looks at us as catalysts of change. Beautiful servants, great leaders. And see us with this huge, wide, oh, depth of understanding about who people are and how oppression has just, just mutated the world and how all these things are just so terrible. All we want to do is find the victim and find the perpetrator. And that is so weak because what God did was came and supplied the victim with everything they needed to succeed. God didn't look at the world and say, oh, poor baby. He looked at the world and he said, oh, I can make something great out of that. Who did Jesus spend his time with? There were plenty of people qualified. Plenty of people qualified who could scoop right in there beside Jesus and they could rub shoulders, they could have some great theological conversation, but that's not what he did. What did he pick? Busted up, broken, messed up, fishermen, sailors, weirdos. That's what he did. 
He called them. And you know what he did on the journey while they walked? They changed. He fixed them there on the journey. 